Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be looking at chapter 3 and verse 16. The title of our sermon is Advent, the Pillar and Ground of the Church. Now let me explain that term Advent, because I know many of us have come from Catholic backgrounds. Advent is Latin for ad venit, which just simply means to come to, or to come or arrive to, and it is the celebration or the doctrine of Christ's coming to earth as a man. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee, we come before Thee, we worship Thee, we lift Thee up. Lord, please help us to hear Thy word, please apply it to our hearts, O Holy Spirit. Our Father, which art in heaven, we come boldly to Thee for grace, for mercy. We open up Thy word as our guide, as our food, as our strength as our comfort, that we might have all hope and peace in believing the words which thou hast given by inspiration through holy men who spake in times past. Lord, and we know now thou hast spoken to us by thy Son, Jesus Christ. Thou hast given us thy Son out of love for us, that all those who believe would never perish, but have everlasting life. O God, as we now study one of the most important doctrines thy word puts forth, thy incarnation, O Christ, O Jesus, our sweet Savior, please teach us and help us. The Lord rebuke Satan, that the word, the good seed of the word may not fall, on bad ground, or the enemy may steal it as it falls upon our hearts, O Lord. But we ask, Holy Spirit, that Thou wouldst cause it to go deep into the soil of our heart and bring forth fruit, good works, love, praise unto Thee for what Thou hast done for us. Lord, please help me, Thy unprofitable servant, to preach thy word, to interpret it. Give these thy people, thy sheep, thy children, ears to hear, hearts to feel and to love, minds to understand, and hands and feet to walk out that which they hear. Lord, we bow before thee, we are dependent upon thee, and can do nothing without thee, our blessed Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's begin in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. The Apostle Paul, writing unto the young minister Timothy, he writes this, These things I write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up 
into glory. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Dear congregation, why is Advent or Christmas season of any value? Why is it a time for celebration, charity, gift-giving, and feasting, even among non-believers? Why this custom that is so prevalent in our country? The custom in and of itself is of no value if its great underpinnings are stripped of reality. In fact, the incarnation of the second person of the triune God, the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, if this did not actually occur, then even theologizing, even preaching about it in the month of December is nothing more than a strange superstition that churches partake in. As Paul said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think also can be even more rightly said about the birth of Jesus Christ. That if Christ was not conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost and born in Bethlehem, then both our preaching and our faith are vain. It is useless because it is untrue. If Christ was not born, then he could not have died. And if never dead, then never risen, and thus our faith is in vain. In our passage... The Apostle Paul admonishes the young minister Timothy as to how he ought to conduct himself in the church of God, in the household of God, who are those among whom they had believed a certain message. The church of the living God, the household of God, is made up of people who believed a certain message and who now held to it and proclaimed it. This household is the church, the pillar and ground of the truth. We saw in verse 15. And what was central to their faith? What was central to their faith? Christmas. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. There is no respected historian in any university who publishes any articles who would deny that Jesus of Nazareth lived. It simply doesn't exist. There's lots of popular authors that get books published at Barnes & Noble, but there's no scholar, no historian that would ever say Jesus of Nazareth did not exist. This is the common knowledge and the common consensus even of atheistic historians like Bart Ehrman. Everyone knows that a man named Jesus lived in Judea in the first century AD. But... This bare truth is not what the early church preached. It's not what the early church preached. Our historians would readily confess with our modern Bible versions, he was manifest in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. But they all scoff at the belief of the early church that God was manifest in the flesh. The offense of Christmas, the offense of Advent, is not that a man was simply born into human flesh and did great acts of charity, great wonders. Untold millions have done that and continue to do that. The offense of Advent is that God was born as a man through a woman and lived as God among men, doing good and obtaining redemption for sinners. That's the offense. What makes Advent offensive 
is the same thing that makes it central to Christianity, the foundation and rock of Christianity. It demands all from those who believe it. It requires absolute surrender. It is God breaking into the world and saying, mine, mine, mine. That's what Christmas is. That's what the incarnation is. It signals the final retreat of Satan and the total victory of God. As Paul says, it is without controversy a great claim, the incarnation. There are many religions that contain mystery, that contain mystery, which are certain claims that are to be believed by those who are initiated into that religion. But with all other religions, especially the early pagan religions and our New Age religions today, these claims that they make, these mysteries that they have, that the initiated believe, even if they are true, hold almost no bearing on reality whatsoever. They demand nothing of man. But no person living, even if they deny that the message of Christianity is true, even if they deny it, is able to hold controversy with the fact that if the claims of Christianity are true, the claims of Christianity are then therefore great. They are holistic. They are life-changing. They breed godliness and piety. With most religions, if their peculiar claims are untrue, they are simply foolishness. Simply foolish. And if true, they hold no real consequence with anyone. But in regards to Christianity, even those who do not believe the facts of our religion can hold no controversy with us about the unspeakable greatness of them, if they are indeed true. Spurgeon once said, Be a man what he may, if he be reasonable, he will admit that Christianity does not deal in trifles. Does not deal in trifles. In our text, let us look at three points. First, the mystery of the gospel. Number one, the mystery of the gospel. Number two, that God was manifest in the flesh. And number three, the mystery of godliness. So one, the mystery of the gospel. Two, God was manifest in the flesh. And three, the mystery of godliness. First, the mystery of the gospel. This is the most important knowledge that any human being can have, the mystery of the gospel. Our text tells us that the truth of the gospel, of which the church is the pillar and the ground, is a mystery. The truth of the gospel is a mystery. This means that the knowledge of this truth is hidden from some and revealed to others in God's providence, in God's election. As Christians, we know that this truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christianity, is of the utmost value and utmost importance. It is the most essential knowledge that anyone could possibly have. It is a mystery because it could not have been devised by natural reasoning. No human could have thought up Christianity. No human would have thought up Christianity, especially the incarnation, the God-man, Christ Jesus. It is a mystery that is without controversy, the greatest of all mysteries, Paul says. That the sinless God, 
The sinless, perfect, omnipotent God should take on flesh to live and die for sinful men. This knowledge is essential. It's essential to have this knowledge. As Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4-5, get wisdom, get understanding. We must be seeking understanding and seeking wisdom and the greatest of all wisdom, which is the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of the mystery of the gospel. This is one thing that all men should seek to obtain, how they might be reconciled to their creator. And to the church, to us the church, this knowledge has been revealed. How can sinful man be accepted with his creator? The sum and the substance of this answer lies in the mystery of the incarnation. What must man do to be reconciled? Nothing. For God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. As John enlarges upon this, in the incarnation, God was manifested in Christ Jesus to take away our sins, and in him is no sin, 1 John 3.5. And Paul, in another place, Hebrews 9.26, says that Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Those who have no knowledge of this glorious mystery, are truly to be pitied, to be pitied. And more so, they are to be called upon to hear this mystery expounded by we who believe. The mystery of a gospel is the most important knowledge that humans can have. It is also a mystery that is without neutrality. It's without neutrality, meaning... The mystery of the gospel gospel, highlighted in the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus is without neutrality whatsoever. No one who hears that God was manifest in the flesh to take away the sins of men can remain neutral about it. Can remain neutral about it. No one who hears this great truth, this great claim, can say, "Huh, I don't really have any feelings one way or another about it. They will either be hardened towards it, or they will melt before it in faith and repentance. Now, as we know, every December, millions of Americans that have lived the rest of the year, the rest of the previous year, in rebellion, with teeth gritted and clenched fists raised towards God, suddenly remember that they are nominally Christian. And become indignant that people say, Happy Holidays, rather than Merry Christmas. But claim Christ's name all they wish, they are none of his. They are none of his. They are like the foolish virgins in the parable, who have forgotten to bring oil for their lamps, and now they have only remembered too late. They are not neutral. No, not any more than anyone else is neutral. When the shepherds who were abiding in the field heard the announcement of the mystery of the gospel, the incarnation from the angels, who said, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. When they heard this, they were enraptured with holy fear, the Bible says, and they immediately received that angelic preaching, saying to one another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. King Herod, on the other hand, upon hearing the same mysterious news of the incarnation of God, was hardened in rebellion and sought to slay 
all of the male children born in Bethlehem within two years to ensure that he killed the babe Christ. So too, none who hear this gospel news today remain neutral. They're either like the shepherds or they're like Herod. They can't remain neutral. It's an impossibility to remain neutral upon hearing the gospel. Advent, or the incarnation, is the foundation of Christianity. The incarnation is the foundation of Christianity. And Christianity makes claims that cannot be met with indifference. Next, this mystery is a mystery only in part. It's a mystery only in part. To those who believe, to us who are saved, who are Christian, this mystery is made known. And to us, it is the power of God unto salvation. And even to the unbelieving, even to the unbelieving, the mystery is revealed in differing degrees, depending on God's providence in their lives. And even to those who know nothing of Christ's name or work, to them also, it's only in part a mystery. Because the gospel can be brought to them by gospel preachers. The mystery can be unveiled to them through preaching. If gospel preachers would only bring it. Though the gospel, the incarnation, is mysterious, it is mysterious only to those who remain in darkness and unregeneration. It is mysterious because it is unknown to the natural mind. Let us now turn to the substance of this mystery, the substance of the mystery of the incarnation. Second, God was manifest in the flesh. This is a scandalous truth, a scandalous truth. First, we see that the incarnation is the most scandalous truth to the minds of men. The most. Why? For the natural man says, what? What? God as man? How can this be? Remember, to the Greeks, the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness, and to the Jews, due to their unbelief and the rejection of their own Messiah, it is a blasphemous stumbling block. Dear congregation, if you will carefully consider it, the doctrine of the Incarnation, this is one of the most extraordinary doctrines ever to be declared to men. And if it was not well attested to in the Scriptures, it would be absolutely asinine that the infinite God, who filleth all things, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty, the Omniscient, the Omnipresent, actually condescended to veil himself in the garments of our inferior clay, of our flesh. He made all things, and yet he stooped to take the flesh of a creature in union, into union with himself. The infinite was linked to man with the infant, and the eternal was blended with mortality in the Incarnation. He who cast out Satan was actually tempted by Satan. He who fed thousands in one scene in John 4 sits upon a well, hungry and weary, and says to a woman, give me to drink. This is simply absurd to the natural intellect. So absurd that it is offensive and a stumbling block, even foolishness. Now, our modern age, just as the heretical Gnostics of yonder years, 
are content that he was manifest in the flesh. He, a mere man. And that this mere man did great wonders. That this mere man taught great esoteric spirituality akin to fortune cookies. And may have even been deified to some degree with the Christ spirit. That's what 1 John is all about. But that God himself was manifest in the flesh, our moderns cannot abide by. Our modern age cannot abide by it more than any other. The Apostle John says to our modern age the same thing he said to his Gnostic age. That if Jesus was merely a man, a man who was given the Christ spirit to do many wondrous things, then he is nothing. He's nothing. Those who are willing to accept that Jesus was a divine man in some generic sense, but not enfleshed deity itself, have no portion in the gospel, the Apostle John says. 1 John 2, 22 and 23, the Apostle writes, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Not just possesses the Christ spirit and is divine by, by nature of having the Christ spirit poured out on him, but that Jesus is the Christ. Not, not a one who possesses the Christ spirit, he, but God, who is Christ. He is Antichrist, the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. The Bible is clear. The Bible is crystal clear, dear congregation. Jesus of Nazareth was God in the flesh. If the scriptures are any weight whatsoever to us, He could be nothing else. Remember John chapter 1. We read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So what Jesus did in the flesh is further proof that he was God. Further proof. For of no one else but God could the following be said, that he was justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. That can only be said of God himself. Not even a divine being, but deity itself. We look at those next words. He was justified in or by the Spirit. All the work, all the work which Jesus Christ did, from the healing of lepers, the casting out of demons, the feeding of the multitudes with no food, the healing of the blind, the raising of the dead, and even unto his submitting to the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he did all of these things by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, was his constant aid and his constant confirmation. His justification even, that he was truly the Christ, the God-man, the second person of the triune God, In flesh. That's what the Spirit did. 
You recall, at his baptism, which was his inauguration into the public ministry, the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove and did not leave him for the rest of his ministry. The culmination of his life was his death upon the cross and his resurrection three days later on behalf of his people. And the Spirit who raised him thus justified his labors. In 1 Peter 3.18 we read, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, meaning made alive by the Spirit. The Spirit's work in Christ was the justification, the proclamation, the seal set upon Christ's ministry that he was the Christ, that he was God incarnate. Next, Paul writes that the incarnate Christ was seen of angels, seen of angels. Truly, the mystery of the gospel throughout all of the Old Testament, the mystery of the coming of Christ in the flesh is something, as the Apostle Peter says, that the angels desired to look into, 1 Peter 1.12. The angels longed for the day that they could see God's glorious work of redemption accomplished on earth. They had heard the preaching of the gospel in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. They too heard it. They saw the triune God and glory from their creation onward. They looked forward to seeing Christ. They desired to look into how this would play out, how the second person of the triune God would redeem his people. This is demonstrated, this is proved, by the constant attendance of angels upon the life of Christ. Angels were constantly attendant upon Jesus Christ's ministry and his life. Remember, they announced his incarnation to Joseph and Mary. They were present at his birth. They ministered to him after his temptation by Satan. They ministered to him in the Garden of Gethsemane before his passion, his crucifixion. They were present at his resurrection, and they even comforted his disciples at his ascension. Angels were his constant observers. This shows what great honor Christ is worthy of. What great honor he is worthy of. That he is worshipped by the angels. Why? Because he is their Lord, their creator. Jesus is. Jesus Christ is Jehovah of hosts. Jehovah of angel armies. Next, Paul says that Christ was preached unto the Gentiles. This truly highlights the mystery of the gospel and the beauty of the incarnation. The Messiah was not only given for the believing Israelites, as, has, as had been supposed by the Jews, but also for all of those who would believe upon him from all nations. This is a great part of the mystery of godliness, that Christ was offered to the Gentiles as Redeemer and Savior as well as to the believing Jews. Whereas before, salvation belonged to the Jews only. Jehovah only delivered the Jews, the nation of Israel. But in Christ, in the mystery of the gospel, that wall that divides Jew and Gentile is now taken down And the Gentiles are also taken in to be the people of God. 
that there is therefore now no Jew or Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ, Paul says. And that's why all this race nonsense, this heretical garbage coming into the church, is so dangerous and so easily dismissed by the scriptures. That there doesn't need to be black church and white church or brown church or yellow church. There is no such thing in the Bible. There is only the church of Christ, the bride of Christ. This thing that is tearing apart churches, this false doctrine, is easily done away with, easily made foolish by the incarnation of Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church saying, When ye read, ye may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. Talking about in the Old Testament. And it is now revealed unto his apostles and his holy prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, Paul says that. And remember, that God the Father said to God the Son, Jesus Christ, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. So dear congregation, without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we Gentiles, I don't think there's any Jews in here, we Gentiles would have no hope. But now, Now we greatly rejoice that Christ was born, that Christ lived, that Christ died, that Christ rose and was ascended for us. For us. Advent reveals this truth to us. The incarnation reveals this truth to us. Next, Paul says that he was believed on in the world. He was preached and he was also believed on. Christ was not only preached as the saving God, appearing in the flesh as man to take away the sins of men, but he was also and furthermore believed upon to be such. The gospel came and the gospel still comes with power, dear congregation, with power. The gospel brings healing in its wings, the Bible says. And to all who believe upon Christ through it. It raises from the dead. The spiritually dead. It's powerful. If you've ever seen someone you know. Or if you've ever looked at yourself as a Christian. You have seen that power manifest. You have seen the power of the gospel laid before you. For you are Christ's. And it's impossible that you could have been without the incarnation. Without the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is never preached in vain. It always comes with power. It always does something. The imprisoned Paul even said that though some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife to make his imprisonment more difficult, yet he would rejoice because in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Philippians 1, 15 and 18. That Christ is preached in, in, in any way. Whether they're doing it to make my imprisonment harder in envy and in strife or in truth. Regardless, even when an unbeliever trying to mock the gospel and God's people preaches the gospel, it can come with power to deliver, to save. Because it is God who works when and how he chooseth 
in and through the word preached. It gives great assurance. The gospel hardens people when they hear it. And it also saves when they hear it. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Isaiah 55, 11, Jehovah says this, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in that thing whereunto I sent it. Whether that be to harden the unbeliever or to save the believer. Many of the Gentiles, you recall, if you read the New Testament, welcomed the gospel when the Jews rejected it. Who would have thought that the world, who had no previous knowledge of a coming Messiah, which lay in wickedness and darkness, would believe in the Son of God, would take him to be their Savior, some Jew they had never heard of, who was crucified at Jerusalem, of all places. Many, no doubt, reject the Savior. Then they rejected him, and now they reject the incarnate Savior. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, John 1.12. We can say the same thing today. Many reject the gospel when they hear it preached, but as many as receive Christ, to them he gives power to become the sons of God, even to all who believe upon his name. This demonstrates that Jesus is truly God incarnate. This demonstrates it to us. That many believe on him, that any believe upon him when he is preached, and that they who do believe upon him are born again. They're made new creatures in Christ Jesus. This demonstrates that Jesus truly is the incarnate God. And therefore, all we Christians can say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, Romans 1.16. How often we are ashamed of it, either in how we behave or in shying away from sharing the gospel. Shying away from sharing the gospel. I know sometimes, maybe I'm out running errands or something, maybe somebody asks me what I do, I want to be like, oh, I'm a pastor. I shy away from it a little bit because I don't want uncomfortable conversations to happen. They'll think I'm a white supremacist. They'll think I'm a bigot, that I want gays put to death. Well, none of that's true, but that's what society has been brainwashed to believe. Rather, I should be unabashedly staunch for the gospel and stand upon it as my bulwark and proclaim, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Even you, dear unbeliever. That's what we must say. Next, Paul says that he was received up into glory. So if this Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, was not God, then why should he have been received up into glory at his ascension? Where where did he go? Where did he go but to return to his place of honor and glory, which he had at his father's right hand before he descended into the earth incarnate. His ascension, dear congregation. Christ's ascension into heaven was the crown of his exaltation. And by this, by this being ascended and received up into glory, 
Paul not only means his ascension, but also his sitting at the right hand of God, his Father, where he ever lives and ever makes intercession for us as his people, where he now has all power, both in heaven and in earth. Christ, incarnate God, now sits reigning and ruling on his Father's right hand in glory, the Bible tells us. If he were not God, why should that have happened? For you remember, even in the Bible, many, many men were raised from the dead, many people. Preteen girls were raised in the, from the dead by Jesus. But they didn't ascend. They weren't received up into glory. This Jesus is truly and must truly be God incarnate, the Christ of the living God. Dear congregation, Christmas, Advent, which all really just means the incarnation of Jesus Christ, teaches us that he who descended is the same who ascended again. He accomplished the work that he was incarnate for. That's why he came. Truly becoming flesh for us men and for our salvation to accomplish the salvation which us men are in so dire and desperate need of. That was the point of the incarnation. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's why Christ was incarnate. Third, The mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Paul states that all this, all this material we just covered, all those things he listed out, are the great mystery of godliness. All of this knowledge, all this doctrine, must result in true godliness, in true piety. Not accurate doctrine only. Not mere head knowledge at all, but heart knowledge, experiential knowledge of the incarnate God for us. Looking to each of the components of the mystery of the incarnation that we just went through, that list that Paul gave, let us then relook at them and apply them to the practice of godliness. First, God was manifest in the flesh for us, living, dying, and raising for us. Therefore, let us live and die in our own fleshly bodies for him. That is our duty. We love Christ because he first loved us, the Bible says. And he not only died for us, he also lived for us. Now, we cannot repay him, and we are not required to repay him, but we can, in knowledge of our guilt and of his grace, live in gratitude to him. That is our duty. God was not manifest in the flesh to leave us in our sin, to leave us on our own path, figuring it out on our own and doing whatever we choose. But he was manifest that through salvation, we might live unto him. We might live unto him. Therefore, Paul writes, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. All to the glory of God. 
For us, Christmas, for us Christians, Christmas is less about giving and more about receiving. More about receiving. Receiving the gift of God and his incarnate son, Christ Jesus. Because of Advent, because of the incarnation, we are his and he is ours. Truly. Therefore, we should live our life for him who lived his life for us, who gave it to us, who laid it down for us. So just as Christ was manifest in the flesh, just as God was manifest in the flesh, we fleshly creatures should live our life for him. Yet, we know that whoever wishes to partake in Christ, to have eternal life, must lose his life for Christ's sake. Take up his cross and follow him. We must examine those things in our life that we say, you may have these things, O Lord, but not this. These things I will hold on to. In this many weeks, and this many years, I will give this part of my life to you. No, that is not the call of Christianity. That is not the call of the blessed Christ, God manifest in the flesh, who came for you, who was born for you, who lived and died and rose for you, who now intercedes for you. He demands it all. Give it now, before you have one more embrace of it. Just as Abraham, when called to offer up Isaac on that altar, did not say, let me have one more embrace of my dear son, who I waited for so long but immediately went to go give him up to God. So too, our own sins, our own desires, let us not look at them one more time. No matter how much benefit we have promised ourselves from, we cannot put our hand to the plow and then look back. No, we must come to Christ immediately because he came for us and died for us. Surrender all. If we cannot repay Christ, which we cannot, still we can honor him. And what greater joy is there, dear believer, than this, than to cast down our crowns at his feet, the crowns that he gave us, the crowns that he empowered us to make. We have been bought with a price. If ye be Christ's, dear congregation, you were bought with a price. We are no longer our own. That's why Paul says in Romans 14, 8, whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. You can run. You can kick against the pricks. But you are still his. The reason for our creation, our chief end, is that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. All things whatsoever we do ought to be done with an eye to him who lived and died for us. Next, as we read that Christ was justified in or by the Spirit, let us walk by that same Spirit that Christ did, that our works also might be pleasing unto God. Christ was justified in the Spirit, we read. All that he did in his ministry, in his passive and his active obedience to God, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. That same Spirit is given to us who believe. That's why those hard calls that we just had, that we just heard, to lay down our life, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him who lived and gave himself for us, seem hard to the flesh, and indeed they are. They are impossible to the flesh. But the Spirit is given to us. The same Spirit which Christ had is in us. 
I touch on that often because I think of it often because I don't believe it very often. That the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that Christ operated by in his ministry that rose him from the dead is in me. Is available to me, is available to you all if you be Christ's. The same Spirit is given to us who believe. He is the down payment of our inheritance, the Bible tells us in Ephesians. Paul writes this to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Listen to this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? He's praying that God would make it known to them. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places? That's the power that's made known unto us. That's why when we look to ourself, we find only reason for discouragement, only inability, only impotence. But when we look to Christ, we see our all and all, our power, our glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that quickened Christ's mortal body has also raised us from spiritual death into spiritual life. The same power that was in Christ to work wonders is in us, empowering us to live the Christian life, to deny self. By the Spirit, we've been given faith, dear believer. By the Spirit, We preach the gospel, dear believer. By the Spirit, we mortify indwelling sin, dear believer. We must walk in the Spirit by His power. Paul says in Galatians 5.25, If we live in or by the Spirit, let us also walk in or by the Spirit. How many of us have struggled with sin that we thought we could never overcome? addictions even, that we thought we could never overcome. And in fact, you couldn't. No way. Impossible that you could ever overcome those sin patterns in your life. But by the Spirit of God, who set thee free. Don't look to yourself and figure out, how could I do this? How could I overcome this thing? You'll never find hope for it. You'll never be able to do it. You look to Christ. To Christ. And ask for that power, that same power that was in Christ raising him from the dead would raise you from the dead. As it says in Romans 8.13, that we must put the deeds of the body to death, mortify them by the Spirit. And if we do that, we shall live. We shall live. Also in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, a command, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So just as Christ was justified in or by the Spirit in his life, so too we must live as Christ lived, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We also read that Christ was seen of angels. The life of Christ was a delight to angels, you recall. And they ministered unto him. So therefore let us live so as to entertain angels also that we might receive their ministry unto us. Angels. The angels were delighted to observe Christ's life. They worshipped him in it. Let us also live in such a way as to please the angels and cause them to worship Christ because of our obedience to him. In obedience and love to Christ, The Bible tells us many saints have entertained angels unaware. 
Hebrews 13.2. Now, I know this might scare us Reformed folk. So I'd be a little weird. We're uneasy with it. We don't like it. But the Bible says it. I don't want to miss out on opportunities to show hospitality to angels, if God so wills. Because that's what the Bible says. To entertain means to give hospitality to them. The angels, we must remember, are sent to us as believers, as messengers of God's grace. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation, it says in Hebrews 1.14. That's what angels are. As they protected and strengthened Christ, so too they do us Christians, even if we are completely unaware of it. And we always are, I think. Now, we shouldn't go the route, and this is why we're afraid as Reformed folk of this verse, we shouldn't go the route of trying to find out how we can communicate with angels and talk to angels and figure out where they are and bring them in and talk to them and and entertain them. Set a table for them. No, that's not the point. We are commanded to live to the glory of God, are we not? Mm. To let the light of our good works shine forth unto the world. That they may see, the world may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus Christ says that. We should desire to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to God, both from men and from angels. That men and angels would see our obedience to God and glorify Him. Let us live openly for God, dear congregation. Live openly, live loudly for God, that devils may tremble, that angels may rejoice, and that men may be brought to glorify God. Amen? Amen. The mystery of mysteries is that Christ came for all peoples, that he would be preached unto the Gentiles and the Jews. So have we heard his name preached? We should preach it unto others. We who have believed must preach what we have heard preached. This is our duty and our delight, to preach Christ. God has his elect in every place, you recall. Every place. God's elect are there. And every people. Let us bring them the message that we have believed. Next it says he was believed on in the world. He was believed upon in the world. So have we believed on him, dear congregation? Have we believed on him who was thus preached? And do we continue to believe upon him who was thus preached to us? Are we confident that we have believed the gospel? Do we trust it still? Does it remain the hope of our life? Have we, just as the church in Ephesus, left our first love, Revelation 2.4? Do we still ply the throne of God daily? O God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Psalm 51.12 Is Christmas, Advent, the Incarnation, a seasonal and secular delight to us? Or is it the everlasting foundational joy of our entire lives? God was manifest in the flesh. And for thee, dear believer, was he manifest. He lived, died, rose, and ascended for thee. He ever lives for thee. He makes intercession for thee continually. Now does this not warm thy heart? And stir thy affections to him, dear believer? Does the babe in the manger, the babe Christ, the God-man wrapped in the swaddlings of humility, 
for thee, still beckon thee to come and serve him, to delight in him? Oh, dear congregation, that's why we must cultivate a deep love and a awe for the work of Christ begun in the incarnation. Make it your continual meditation, your most pleasant thought. Last, we see that he was received into glory, and with him we shall also be glorified. We shall also be received up into glory. Christ was received into glory as our forerunner, the Bible says. Where he has gone, we too shall go to be with him. With him. He has not left us as orphans here, but he has given us his spirit. And this same spirit shall very soon take us up upon his wings and bring us into the place where he whom our soul loveth is. To bring us into the presence of Christ That same spirit which he left with us and gave to us shall bring us to him. Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the Bible says. And he's the firstborn of the dead because we too might rise with him at that great day. We will rise with him. Billions of men have been born. I think even we too have been born. But none have done what Christ did after his birth. None. We celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation of God manifest in the flesh in order to celebrate the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension and the intercession of Christ. All of this, all of this, he did for us. He is glorified right now. And we shall be glorified with him. He is risen and we shall be risen with him. He is reigning, and we shall reign with him. Does this not prick your hearts? It should. Does this not cause worship to well up within your souls that we should not even cry out right now, glory, glory, hallelujah, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever? That is the only appropriate response that we lay down our life in praise and adoration and exaltation of Him. Dear congregation, this that we just looked at is the claim of Christmas, the claim of the incarnation. God was manifest in the flesh. God, our God even, was manifest in the flesh. Therefore, we cannot remain neutral, and we do not. But whenever we see neutrality towards Christ, apathy towards Christ, raise and rear its ugly head in our daily life, we must slay it and lop it off. This mystery is without controversy. It is the common confession of all the church throughout the ages. That's what the original means. This gospel, this work of Christ, is appalling to the world. But it is wonderful in our eyes as Christians. The incarnation is the nurse of all true piety, all true godliness. It does not leave us unmoved, does it? It has not. But it transforms us. It conforms us to Christ. And it moves our feet and our hands to serve him who was incarnate for us.
In the incarnation, we are given Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. His name, which he was given, is Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And I think that I even see some out here who he has saved. In the incarnation, God is with us. He has become bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He is with us, as he says, always, even unto the end of the world. May this mystery then, therefore, dear congregation, overtake us. Overtake us. May it be our all-consuming passion, ever on our hearts and always in our lips. And without controversy, dear congregation, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. We thank Thee for giving us Jesus, our Savior. We thank Thee, O Lord Jesus, for becoming incarnate for us, for miraculously entering in to this world to live on our behalf, to die on behalf of our sins, to rise from the dead, to ascend, to intercede for us. Lord, may these truths capture our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, stir our affections towards Christ. Holy Spirit, help us to live in a way that is pleasing to Thee, our triune God. In Jesus' name, amen.